If you'd open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 3. Father in heaven, as always, we are grateful, Lord, for the time we have to be able to open your word and study, and in particular, Father, as we study the life of Christ as it's been given to us in the book of Matthew. Father, we ask you to give to us insight and understanding into his life, into the things that he did, into the things that he said, as to why he did the things he did, as to why he said the things that he said. We pray, Lord, that these things would enable us, Father, to, to gain a better understanding of you, a better understanding of the purpose of Christ's coming and his life and his obedience to your word. We ask, Lord, that it would give to us a, a deeper and a broader understanding, really, of the sinfulness of man and of the greatness of your grace that you have poured out to us. So, Father, we pray that you would eliminate distractions from us and you would enable us, Father, to focus on your word and those things that are presented to us here. As always, we do thank you and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So Matthew chapter 3, I'll be reading verses three through, I mean 13 through 17, and it reads this way. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So in verse 1 of this chapter, it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. Oh, verse 13, uh, it says that. So, we need to ask the question, why baptism? Why was this being done? We know that immersion was a very common Jewish practice. Uh, ritual immersion took place in what's called a mikvah. Uh, and that's the title of the message tonight. A, a mikvah is a ritual bath. And it was of great importance uh, to the first century Jewish man or woman. In fact, it was understood that if a community or a village only had enough money for a synagogue or a mikvah, the mikvah would be built first. So that was the importance that they placed uh, on the mikvah and how they understood it in light of Jewish law. And when I say Jewish law, I mean primarily the Mosaic law that uh, God had given to Moses. The Old Testament does speak of a lot of numerous things that would make a person ritually unclean. Uh, the word that we're the most familiar with is the word defiled. So an individual's sins, as well as other things, could cause a person to be defiled. The main aspect of being defiled meant that you were, you were made unworthy or you were unworthy uh, to be in the presence of God. You were unworthy to be able to worship. Uh, it was a very serious thing because if you were defiled, you were kept out of a large part of the community because everything they did was centered around uh, the synagogue or centered around the temple around the tabernacle, depending on what time and era you were living in. Uh, but it was central to life. And if you were defiled, you could not participate in those things. 
and normally, maybe always, you were also cut off from all of your neighbors because contact between you and them would cause them to become defiled. And so this is a real big uh, thing in their, uh, in, in their social life and in their religious life. I do think that we need to make sure that when we, as we come to understand this and look at the importance of this, that we recognize that this is a picture for us uh, when it comes to sin, that uh, we are filled with sin, that we can sin intentionally, we also can sin unintentionally. In other words, we, there was no desire on our part to do wrong, but nonetheless, we have violated the law of God. It helps us to understand uh, the gap that's created between the sinner and God, that his holiness is of such that it was important that an individual have whatever it is that's defining them dealt with. It had to be dealt with. It had to be dealt with in a particular way because you, you cannot, you could not then, you cannot now just approach God any way you want to. I know we have a, a common saying among ourselves as Christians, and we, we normally mean this as Christians, that we can really come to God any way that we want. You can come as you are. It doesn't really matter uh, because he will accept you. Well, that's, that's true and it's false. We need to remember that you cannot just come any way you want to God. He has dictated exactly how you come to him. It's always through Christ, period. There is no other way. There's, there's never the idea that we can just have a casual communication or a casual relationship or casually come in the presence of God. Sin is a big issue uh, with him because of the seriousness of sin. Remember that sin is why there is death. Sin is why there is disease. Sin is why there is decay. Sin is the, is the problem that we have in our life. It's the problem we have in the life of our families. It's the problem we have in the life of our community. It's the, it's the problem we have in the life of our nation. And it's the problem we have uh, throughout the world. And it is, it is the number one cause. It is the root cause. It is the foundational cause for every single problem that we have. Remember, that's not a narrow-minded approach. That's just the true approach. That's what the scripture declares to us. In the world we live in, the world is constantly trying to find ways to explain, really, without God, the difficulties that we have. And so they will explain things either environmentally or they will explain things saying, well, you know, it's genetic. Or they will explain things and say that it's, well, it's really, it's mental or, you know, it's emotional. And, And there's all these explanations we want to give. But we don't want to deal with the spiritual aspect, the reality of the spiritual truth of sin. Remember that, though, when it comes to sin, it's not, in a sense, only a spiritual problem. It crosses over into every aspect of life. So we want to make sure that we, ha- that we ourselves have a more of a very robust, full understanding of sin and the seriousness of sin, of what it means to be defiled, and the need, then, to be reconciled to God so that we can communicate with God, so that he can communicate with us, so that we can be blessed by God. So this is a major thing. And it's easy for us to overlook it, because even though as Christians we, we do have an understanding of sin and its seriousness, and as we grow, that normally that, that understanding grows deeper and our understanding of it broadens, we still live in a culture that really diminishes that whole idea. And also, because we do live 
Remember the Bible tells us that God has placed us in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Uh, we are easily influenced by the world around us. And when I say that we're easily influenced, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to become just like the world. In other words, our attitude, we, we, we're not going to have the same attitude that the world does when it comes to dealing with certain kinds of sins, whether it's adultery and, or, or theft or lying. You know, we still recognize those things clearly as being sinful. But at the same time, uh, there's a very powerful force in our culture that continually seeks to conform us to its image or to conform us to the way that it thinks. And it is very much anti-God. And so as we uh, continue to become more accommodating or more accepting when it comes to sin, whether it's sin in our life or the sins in other individuals' life, that's, that's the effect of sin on us. And so the Bible also then, with all of this uh, talk about being defiled and then needing to become clean, uh, even becoming ceremonially clean, the idea is also on the emphasis of having to deal with that and us remaining to a very high degree separate from the world. So when we speak of separation, though, uh, again, it's important that we're not talking about you and I physically separating us, ourselves from the world. There are times when there's some of that, but we know that God is not calling us to depart from our culture and go live in a mountain or in a cave where we're totally cut off from the world because God, once again, wants us to be a part of the world, not the world system, but to be a part of the world. We are the ones that are ambassadors for Christ. We are the ones who are to carry the message that God has given us to this lost and dying world. But again, there's that tension where God is demanding of us holiness in every aspect of our life uh, and then living in, this, in, 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 a, in a culture, in a world that is so powerful uh, because of the weakness of our flesh can easily affect us and cause us to begin to compromise uh, on our thinking uh, about God and about various types of, of moral issues uh, and, again, personally, inwardly, as well as what's going on in the lives of others. So we want to make sure that we get, a, we get a good grasp of this. And I think that you'll see that as we go through uh, some really detailed background about the mikvah and how big of a uh, place it held in the life of the average Jewish person, uh, we will begin to see how unyielding this truth is. And this, re this reminder is truly constant, almost, we could almost say, even to the point of nagging. Uh, but it's one that God does not want us to forget uh, because, again, of its importance. And it's also the power, the power of sin. Uh, it's very, very uh, uh, pervasive throughout every aspect of life. And it's also very persuasive in causing us, because it's very appealing to the flesh, uh, in many different ways. So again, this, this mikvah, as I mentioned before, when it came to a Jewish village, if they didn't have a synagogue, if you know anything about Jewish history, that was a real big deal. And then they wanted to make sure that they could build that synagogue. But if they were poor and they only had enough money for the ritual bath or the synagogue, the bath had to be built first. Uh, and there was just no, no real discussion after that. Again, the Old Testament does speak, again, of numerous things that would make a person ritually unclean uh, and a number of processes of purification uh, that was necessary. The one act required in all purification processes that the Old Testament speaks about was immersion, or what we would call baptism. That was required in every single process of being purified from whatever it was that defiled you. Uh, there was a place for baptism uh, that must take place within that 
uh, within that process that's there. So again, life for the average Jew in the average village dependent on access to the mikvah. A man from the tribe of Levi could not assume his office as a priest until he had gone through a mikvah. Before a person could be ritually clean to enter the grounds of the holy temple in Jerusalem, he must be immersed in the mikvah. Uh, and, and the reason why I'm using the word mikvah is because it was a special way that it was designed. It was a special way that water had to enter into it. It had to hold a certain amount of water. There, the details about how the mikvah was to be built and how it was to be cared for was, again, one that was the details were given by God as to how, and then kind of fleshed out uh, by their leaders through the years. The severest punishment that was imposed on a person for entering the temple area in a state of ritual impurity was, was that if you entered into the temple grounds impure, then the severest penalty that they could imagine was going to be brought against you as an individual. A woman in her monthly cycle was required to wear special clothing so, she would, so that all would know that she was ritually unclean due to her monthly cycle. Imagine if we had to do that today. That every single time a woman would enter into her menstrual cycle, she had to wear special clothing to be identified as being in that process so we would all know that was going on so we would then stay separated from that individual because we would not want to become defiled. Again, it doesn't mean that she is in sin. It's not insinuating that. But God is a God of holiness in every aspect of his being. And that's being emphasized in all of these various rituals and commands and laws that God had given And she would then not be ritually clean until not only after that cycle ended, but then she would have to be baptized in the mikvah. She would have to be immersed in the mikvah. And then she would be clean and she'd be able to go to the temple to be able to worship. So immersion in a a mikvah is an integral part of conversion to Judaism. If, if until you're baptized, you're not, your conversion is not counted as being uh, genuine or complete uh, or in any way to have even taken place because that had to be done as well. So without immersion, uh, conversion to Judaism was not valid. Uh, and again, there are many more times um, uh, where immersion in a mikvah was customary. So the mikvah, again, is a ritual bath. So they didn't literally go in there to take a bath. It was all about the symbolism and all about what it meant and all what it, what it meant for them to think about and what it identified for them. The word mikvah itself is a Hebrew word that just means a pool or a gathering of water. So I'm going to read to you from the book of Leviticus. Uh, we're not going, I'm not looking at the laws necessarily that require you to be immersed. Uh, we're just looking at this word and how it's used in the Old Testament. It appears a couple times in the Old Testament. And so I just want to, to look at it just real quick for just a moment uh, so we can kind of gain maybe a better understanding. So in verse 29 of Leviticus 11, it reads this way. Of the animals that move about on the ground, these are unclean for you. The weasel, the rat, any kind of great lizard, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the wall lizard, the skink, and the chameleon. Of all those that move along the ground, these are unclean for you. Whoever touches them when they are dead will be unclean till evening. So again, so if, you a, if you have a gecko in your house, which in Hawaii, all of us have geckos in the house, in our house. You want geckos in your house because they eat bugs. Uh, and uh, so if, if one dies and you pick it up to go put it in the trash, well, if that was the day you were supposed to go to the temple, you can't go now because you're unclean. Uh, 
And so, again, all these things are described for them. Verse 32, when one of them dies and falls on something, that article, whatever its use, will be unclean, whether it is made of wood, cloth, hide, or sackcloth. Put it in water. It will be unclean till evening. Uh, Put it in water. The emphasis there is if you would put it in a mikvah, you would have uh, a different mikvah. Most homes would have more than one mikvah. There'd be one that you would have a certain amount of water for the individual to be baptized in, but you would also have one set aside for your dishes. And again, all that was this idea of this ritual uh, cleaning to make sure that that whatever was that had caused that pot, the pots and pans to become unclean, if you were to use them without them being immersed in the mikvah, then whatever you cooked would be unclean. Then you would eat it, and then you would be internally unclean. And again, there's, you know, so there's a lot of this. this. This can seem like it's very burdensome. I think it would be to a degree. But again, the idea was is that you just can't approach God willy-nilly. It's, it's, it's reminding us that we are separated from God in every way. And until that is remedied, this is what we have to live with. And so again, we can be very grateful uh, for the coming of Christ, not just because it's made our lives to a degree easier, though that's true in, in one sense, but because this major blockade, this major gap that we cannot cross, that we cannot fix, has been dealt with by Christ uh, once and for all. So then uh, uh, verse 33, if one of them falls into a clay pot, everything in it will be unclean, and you must break the pot. Any food that could be eaten but has water on it from such a pot is unclean. And any liquid that could be drunk from it is unclean. Anything that one of their carcasses falls on becomes unclean. An oven or cooking pot must be broken up. They are unclean, and you are to regard them as unclean. A spring, however, or a cistern for collecting water, and that the word there for collecting water, that's the mikvah, remains clean. But anyone who touches one of these carcasses is unclean. So just that one little area, there's just a lot of things you've got to be aware of, uh, which is important. They also dealt with it in the law, that there, you, know, you would have to do certain things because you might be defiled and not know it. And there was a real fear about that. You, you've heard me say before that uh, when it would come to the, the high Sabbath or when it came to important uh, festivals, Passover, etc., uh, that they would have, they would hire men, usually be Gentiles, they would hire men to go and search in the countryside to look for unmarked graves uh, because, and, and then to mark them because be, people would be traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate. And the last thing you'd want to do is walk across a grave because if you did that, it didn't bring you bad luck. It wasn't that, but you're now, you're now defiled. And of course, the worst possible scenario is to not know you're defiled. And you are, in essence, bringing this uncleanness into the temple area and defiling it and everybody there. And that would be an offense to God, a very real offense to God. So these groups would go out and they would mark any graves where either the, maybe the, the marker had, was, had uh, not been cared for and it was no longer visible, or maybe someone had buried and, uh, and, and they recognized there was a grave that a marker had put there. They would mark these graves out to help those who are traveling uh, to not become defiled in that way. Then in Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 12 through 13, it says, A glorious throne, exalted from the beginning, is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. 
Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. What is interesting is in verse 13 where it says, O Lord, the hope of Israel. The words, the hope, that the word hope is translated from the word mikvah. And it's used there for hope. So mikvah then is not just a word that, that, that we understand it re- represents this, this, this bath of water that you use for ceremonial cleansing. But it also meant hope. And there's a lot tied into the meaning of that word. So it, it gives the understanding that the Messiah or that Christ is the cleansing fountain or the hope of Israel. That's what it's talking about. So they would recognize then that the mikvah is a big part of their life. Uh, they're doing baptisms all the time, baptizing, baptizing utensils and pots and pans and baptizing themselves for all these different, to, to uh, you know, keep themselves clean. And then if there's a violation or you become defiled, you know, there's all these things going on. And then it talks about the Messiah coming. And the Messiah is the hope. He's like, he's, he's, he's the mikvah. He's going to be, I guess you could say, the final mikvah, so to speak, who's going to bring about this once and for all final cleansing. So they then can be reconciled to their God and nothing else is going to stand in the way. In fact, let me read to you from the Gospel of John. John chapter 19, beginning in verse 34. It says, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Uh, it is, is viewed by Messianic Jews when they read that. They're not, I'm not saying it's, they only do that. They're the only ones that interpret it this way. But the idea is, is the opening of this side, the water and the blood coming out of Jesus, again, is the cleansing fountain for Israel. We recognize that as the cleansing fountain for sinners, for us. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1 says, In that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. So they made all these connections, those who believed in Jesus, and, and when they began to understand his death, they would make that connection with him, the hope of Israel, which is the mikvah, and then this verse here, uh, and passages that talk about this fountain uh, being open to the house of David, and specifically for sin and for uncleanness. And again, that uncleanness is the idea of, of being defiled. So remember that when it comes to um, we've, 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 you may have had discussions with people about this before, that sometimes it can be very difficult to share the gospel with individuals who are extremely moral. Because we don't, there's no easily recognizable sins in their life. And many of them also probably believe they've not done any sin that requires them to be saved in the sense that someone had to come and die for them. They don't recognize that they are, before God, defiled. They are separated because of sin. It's not only the seriousness of the sin that you commit. The fact that we are in, this, we are in sinful flesh automatically means we're born spiritually dead with a sin nature, with a natural bent towards sin. We're already separated from God. So then when you're sharing the gospel with an individual who, let's say, may be very, very moral, uh, A, remember it's not your responsibility to try to make them feel guilty for sin. It's not for you to try to ask them enough questions to find out if they've committed some big sin. They don't have to. Just explain to them what the Bible says. And again, it's true for all of us. Uh, that uh, an individual stands before God defiled and he's already separated from him. The NIV reads this way of Zechariah 13.1. It says, On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. 
So whether you want to use the word uncleanness or the word impurity, uh, again, those words may help an individual recognize that they really are separated from God and that it's not just the idea that maybe someone has committed some big sins, that all sins and just because you are impure alone separates you from God. So again, to understand the significance of the mikvah and its importance to the daily life of any Jewish person living you know, during or before the first century, we need to look a little bit at the process by which a person became ritually clean. Uh, for example, when you examine the, the purification process of a leper, uh, and when you read that in the scriptures, it, 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 it requires the same process for a leper or someone who has an undefined human skin disease. Remember, they didn't have all the categories to label diseases like we do. So leprosy wasn't always, uh, when it's used in the law, doesn't necessarily only mean just leprosy. It could be any skin disease, but it was all treated the same. Uh, even though they did recognize that there was a difference between a leper and someone who had just a skin disease because uh, it was very clear that when Jesus healed the lepers, uh, that was a real big deal in Israel when he did that. But there was a very lengthy process for purification. We're not going to go through it, but I have it in your bulletin. Uh, you can look on page 5, and there's 18 steps. Uh, and those 18 steps aren't counting um, the uh, five sub-steps that come in association with number five. So just take a look at that. You, you can look at the passage if you want, uh, but you can recognize that there's a lot going on here with this. And, and again, I think one of the great things about leprosy, uh, not that it's a great disease to have because it's not, but the kind of disease that it is, is a great picture of sin and what sin can do to you and how it really defiles an individual. Uh, I believe it was written by Philip Yancey. Uh, he wrote a book on, I believe it's called The Gift of Pain. And really all that it is, it's a book that describes in great detail leprosy and what it does to the individual. Uh, and, you, and even though he'll point them out, you will immediately recognize and be able to associate many of the descriptions that we're familiar with in the Bible about what sin does to a person. And you will see that really in, in the flesh, when you begin to work your way through leprosy and uh, the problems that leprosy uh, poses to individuals. In fact, just kind of as a side note, I think that each year in our country, uh, between one and 200 cases of leprosy are, are reported. Uh, but there, you know there's a new problem now in Los Angeles among the homeless. And I think uh, at the beginning of this year, like during the first quarter, uh, almost a thousand cases of leprosy uh, have been diagnosed. Uh, so it's a problem, to say the least. Uh, and one of the problems that it does is it, be, it, it kills uh, feeling, nerve endings. You know, it desensitizes the individual to pain. And that's why if you ever do any reading of, uh, of a biography of anyone who either worked with leprosy patients or someone who was a leper, it was not unusual to find uh, individuals always having their hands and feet wrapped. And the reason for that is, for example, you would stub your toe and you wouldn't feel it. And then it would begin to fester. Uh, if you begin to have rotting flesh, I don't know if you know this, but that does attract rats. And rats would come and begin to nibble, nibble on, your, on your feet. Um, sometimes in a, when there used to be a very, when it was popular to have um, a leprosy colony, one of the ways that lepers would look out for each other is when you were sleeping in your bed, if you, if you slept and your arm fell off the bed and your, and your hand was laying low, 
they would come and lift your hand up and put it back on top of your body and maybe put the, the cover over it because if your hand was down there, again, the rats may come and begin to nibble on your, uh, and, and you, wouldn't, you would be unaware of it. And so you really have to go through a lot of steps to, to kind of preserve and protect what you have left. Uh, and of course, any kind of accidents, burns, all those types of things, you just don't feel it. Uh, and it's very problematic and, and it continues to grow uh, and really uh, mess with the individual's nervous ner nerves uh, and, and the, how that whole system works. And so it's just a, uh, if, if you want to do some reading, uh, it's not a hard book to read. It's, it's very, very easy read, uh, but I just found it to be just incredibly intriguing and interesting. Uh, and I think you'll find it the, the same. So I have that there for you to look at just to kind of give you an idea of, uh, I think you can see here the, the seriousness of sin and then how difficult it is to become purified to be declared that you are no longer defiled. It's, it's a big deal uh, uh, to God and to those who were um, involved in this. A couple other uh, things that could really cause you to be defiled. Exposure to a dead body. In Numbers 19, if you came in contact with a dead body or if you went inside of a tomb, you were unclean for seven days. And on the third and seventh day, you'd be sprinkled with water in which ashes of the red heifer have been dissolved. Then on the seventh day, you would be immersed, your whole body, then you would wash your clothes, and then you would become clean. So if you have someone in your family who dies, well, you're the one who's got to take care of them. So you're doing a, a work of mercy, but you're unclean. And you have to go through all of this uh, process, to, again, to be clean, to be able to go to the temple and to worship the Lord. Uh, exposure to a person having an unclean issue. That, that, that's a very broad topic, but you'll find that also in Leviticus chapter 15. So any person that comes into contact with the body of or with an article of furniture used by a person having an unclean issue or any article used by that person must immerse both their body and their garment and you'll be unclean for an entire day. In Matthew 9, we have this woman with the issue of blood uh, that's called uh, Zavah. I'm not sure I'm saying that correctly, but the woman with the issue of blood that we have in Matthew 9, she touched the garment of Christ uh, in a normal society or the way things would normally work. He would be immediately unclean. He would have to leave. He'd have to immerse himself and wash his garment and be unclean for a whole day. It didn't mean that he sinned, uh, or, and it doesn't mean he was in a sinful state, but he would be unclean. Of course, you know, with Christ, that's a very different thing because he actually made her clean in every way. And so the contrast to the, uh, a, an Orthodox Jew, they would not miss that. that. This would be an astounding story to them. We read it, eh, you know, because we just don't have that, that idea. But, but they have a real big uh, thing with that. That woman also would have been punished severely for being out in public in a state of being ritually unclean. Remember, she had this issue for years. That basically having this issue and not being able to deal with it would again cut her off from all of society and from most of her family until it's dealt with, until it's resolved. She had no hope. So she was truly an outcast in every way. So don't think that she was only an outcast where she couldn't go to the temple. That, that, was, the, that was part of it for sure. But it was everybody else. Because remember, everything in their life revolved around their relationship with the temple. Very similar to us as believers. Everything in our life revolves around our relationship with Christ. In fact, when you get to uh, Matthew and we talk what we are familiar with, the Pastor John uh, Church Discipline, one of the reasons 
for church discipline is not just to bring someone to repentance and help them to, to be restored to Christ and to grow in the lives of believers. That's definitely a part of it. But there's also God demands the purity of his what? Of his church. And he knows that an individual who is, who is involved in repetitive sin, who's not being confronted and who's not repenting, they are going to what? Defile many other people. They're going to cause a problem in the lives of many others. They're going to, they're going to cause others to sin. They're going to be influential in, in that, those individuals sinning in many different ways. And as a result of that, Christ wants his body to be pure. And so, again, we need to keep those things in mind. So, again, uh, the virtue that went out of Christ uh, really was his ritual purity that had enough power to heal her. And that's just, a, just an amazing story. And, of course, we know that the purity of Christ was enough to overcome all of her ritual impurity. It's, it's enough to cover all of our ritual impurity. Uh, and the woman would have to fulfill the requirements to become clean. Then in Leviticus 15, we have another thing that's dealt with, which is called, uh, I guess it's pronounced Nida or Nida, maybe Nida. But basically, it's, it's a woman is ritually unclean. This goes back to what I mentioned before about her monthly cycle. And I, met, I mentioned that she would have to wear special clothes that would signify to everybody what was going on with her health. Uh, that, would be, that would seem to be a very humiliating thing. But to them, uh, back in those days, people didn't respond that way. In the Jewish community, people would not have, it would not have been humiliating. It would have been the, the right thing to do for the pursuit of being undefiled and being able to worship God. And so she was doing, a, as she's obeying the law, but she's doing an act of kindness to all those around her so that they could still be involved in really the community uh, without being infected uh, by her. And so, uh, again, that was done. So she, she would be set apart for seven days. Uh, they're actually called the seven red days. Uh, after the seven red days, she would then have to count seven more days. Those are called the white days. Uh, and then uh, a woman has the status of, of, of who, who has the status of Nida from the time that she has her um, cycle until she's immersed in the mikvah, and then that's the last thing she does, then she's clean. And now she can re-engage in every aspect of, of life, in the family, and society, and around the temple. So again, today, the most general use of the mikvah in Jewish circles is still for that. Uh, I don't believe they, they necessarily have to wear the special clothes. I didn't look up to see if the Orthodox Jews still do that in Israel. They may uh, but again, this is still practiced on a regular basis by those who are Orthodox Jews. Uh, they still have a mikveh in their home, and they go through this whole cycle uh, with, with the woman. It's the easiest one to identify, um, and um, uh, there's no requirement for a sacrifice of an animal, which they wouldn't be able to do anyway, uh, because the altar is not established. So again, a Jewish woman that, Jewish women that participate in this practice, um, most of them say they would never give it up. They would, they would not give it up. They, they were going to continue to do that. Um, it seems that the husband-wife bond uh, during this time is stabilized um, by this time of separation. Uh, infidelity during that time is virtually unknown. The divorce rate in that group is significantly lower uh, than any other group. Uh, the practice of nidda again, does not require uh, the holy temple be standing. So this law is in effect today. Again, a special requirement, as, as far as I know, a special garment is not required. Um, and it is considered by the rabbis 
that without the holy temple, all of us are unclean. So that's, that's why there's no special garment that's required. Uh, immersion for the nidda and the woman after childbirth should take place after dark. Uh, all the other immersions that would take place in the mikvah were done during the daytime. But for a woman, when it, at the end of her cycle and when she would give, give birth to a child, the immersion then was done at night. So childbirth was another thing, a very natural thing that women would do, obviously, and that would cause an individual once again to be defiled. Uh, a woman would be unclean for seven days after giving birth to a male child. Then 33 days later at the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, uh, she would go there for a purification for the appropriate sacrifices to be made. Uh, there are different requirements for the birth of a girl uh, compared to the birth of a male. Uh, again, for the birth of a male, it would be 33 days until she would go to the temple. If she gave birth to, uh, and it would be seven days after giving birth to a male child, then 33 days later she would go to the temple. If she gave birth to a girl, she would be unclean for 14 days, and then there would be an additional 66 days before the sacrifices can be made. You want to know why? I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> uh, but I'm sure that uh, if there are any, any individuals who are women libbers, uh, that would drive them nuts. Uh, but there's nothing we can do about that. That's just, that's what it is. Uh, so anyway, uh, and again, remember, I think what the rabbi said before, all of us are unclean. So it's not, it's, it's, it's not trying to mark out an individual saying that they are more dirty or they're more unclean than others. It's just, that's not what the point is. Um, but anyway, uh, I'm sure that would drive some people nuts. And then I've already mentioned before the whole thing about the dishes, uh, the last type of immersion to do. So again, this is not the normal washing of dishes. This is making sure they're cleansed in a ceremonial uh, kind of way. Uh, cooking, cooking utensils, uh, things that are not made of, of metal and glass would, have to, would go through this immersion. Um, if, if you would buy pots and pans from a non-Jewish person, you would have to immerse them in a mikvah before you use them uh, because you were trying to remove the impurity of the Gentiles. So it's not that the Gentiles... The understanding was Gentiles lived differently than Orthodox Jews. And they would do things that Jewish people wouldn't do. I'm not, not necessarily sinful, but they would just do things that they wouldn't do. For example, they, they, would, they, they would eat pork and they may not wash their hands enough and then they touch the, the pots and pans they sell to you, that's a problem. And so you would have to go through all this. I think I've, some of you know the story. My, my dad went on a trip to Israel on one of those teaching tours. And so they went uh, to this cafe. And, uh, you know, they have two sets of dishes, all different kinds of rules about all of those things. And my, and my dad went up and he grabbed some bread. Then he took some butter and slapped it on his plate. And I sat down, and the waitress went nuts. She came over and was yelling at my dad in Hebrew, and she reached down and grabbed the plate, and she flung the bread off the plate, and she threw the dish into the, uh, into the street and shattered it all over the place. And my dad, has, he's just like, you know? And he was with Arnold Futenbaum, and Arnold is cracking up. He is laughing <laughs> at this whole thing. And so uh, uh, my dad had another piece of bread. And then uh, he looked at Arnold like, so what do I do if I want butter? <laughs> and I, Arnold helped him out with that. So anyway, um, <laughs> he didn't have that happen again. But again, the idea was if you did buy dishes of some kind, you, cooking utensils from a, from, a Jew, from a non-Jew, you would then have to immerse these things into a mikvah before you could use them. And of course, 
Uh, there was a process of immersion by which not only the vessels would be ritually cleaned to remove even non-kosher food from them that might have penetrated their walls. So there was all the what-ifs, you know. You know, they were concerned about unintentional sin as well, or unintentional defilement as well. So again, this is just a, it's a, it's a major thing uh, with them. If, if uh, men went to war, uh, if they would bring back the spoils of war, which they'd be allowed to do from time to time, uh, you would purify things through fire, but certain things couldn't be purified by fire because it would be destroyed, so they would have to be immersed in a mikvah. Uh, so if they brought back some weapons and cooking utensils, then that would have to be done. The big thing, worship in the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, what was the purpose of the tabernacle or the temple and the form of worship that's prescribed? And I think this is really very interesting as to how they viewed uh, the temple or the tabernacle and worship. The tabernacle was seen by the people of Israel as containing the very throne of God. Now, that's not wrong. We know this where God was. Remember when, when you think about the Shekinah glory in the tabernacle? Um, you know, he, he dwelt there in the tabernacle. You know, that, when I say the throne, they don't mean like the throne in heaven, but the, that's where the presence of God actually dwelt. And so there was a very special sense of reverence that was necessary uh, for them to go and to approach God in that way. They believed that the earth had become consumed with evil after Adam had sinned. That'd be correct. Uh, and uh, the presence of God was removed from the Garden of Eden. There was not an area on the earth that the Lord could walk and talk with man as he had done in the garden. So the tabernacle was established by a commandment from God to provide a dwelling place for God here on earth and for man to commune with and worship him in a pure environment. That's what that was for. The reason why they had the tabernacle and carried it wherever they went, when they built that temple, the idea they had this understanding that sin had infected the entire planet. And what Adam had, what we read in the book of Genesis, where he walked with ta- and talked with God in the garden, they, they desperately wanted that. How is that going to happen? Because now the earth has been cursed by sin. And it has been. We have the tabernacle. And all these ceremonies and all these things that bring about purity are important because it enables God. Not that because God is weak. God is not weak, but God is holy. And because he is holy, because man is not, and because the earth is not, and because everything in the earth and on the earth is not, you have to go through all these things to to make sure all these things are purified so that man could commune with God and worship God. And it's just, there's just so much there for us to think about. Uh, it's one of the reasons why we sometimes encourage each other when we gather to come together as believers on, on the day that we worship, which is on Sunday. Uh, it's important for us to deal with our sin during the week. It's important for us to prepare our hearts because we're now gathering as a people together to commune with God. We need to, be, we need to remind ourselves that, that, yes, the Spirit of God dwells within us because God has purified us with, with the blood of Christ and we're able to commune with God like Adam did, even though we're still in the body of flesh, and now we can gather together as his people to do the same thing. And you don't want to be the cause of that not happening. And so we want to make sure that we're dealing with things in our life the way they're supposed to as believers so we then can come and commune with God as his people and enjoy being in his presence. Because that's really the idea. We know that God is always with us, but there's also this idea that we're coming in the presence of God. And so all the churches in all the world that gather together on the first day of the week, they're all gathering in the presence of God. God is everywhere, but in the, it is a, there's a unique 
relationship and a unique presence that we're talking about when, it, when we gather together for the sole purpose of honoring him uh, and uh, seeking to be encouraged by him as we seek to worship him together. Again, Exodus chapter 25, verse 8 says, uh, And let them make me, as God speaking, a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So again, the sanctuary, and let me read this to you. This, is, uh, uh, this uh, part of this paragraph comes from Arnold. The sanctuary was to take the place of the pleasant walks and talks that God had with man in the Garden of Eden. The sanctuary was to be devoted completely to the communication with and the worship of God, where everything pertaining to the impurity of sin would be excluded. The great kingdom age, when the Messiah will rule and reign here on earth from Jerusalem for a thousand-year span, is seen in Jewish eschatology as a repeat of the Garden of Eden. Now, I just think that's a fabulous picture. So we've gone through most of the information we need for the mikvah. All this is going to lead to answering the question, why did Jesus have to be baptized? And why did he say that being baptized was to fulfill all righteousness? Uh, we, we can know exactly what he meant by that. We're not, we, we're not left to just kind of guessing as to what that meant. It's not some nebulous thing. But we'll have to do with that next week um, because uh, we are finished for uh, this evening. Uh, but I trust that um, this will help give you, that, again, a good grasp, uh, I would say, of the, of the depth of the problem that we all have when it comes to sin. And that then should increase uh, uh, and deepen a sense of gratitude for God uh, that this was now dealt with uh, finally by, in finality by Christ himself and why it is so great that we have, not only that we have the gospel, the message of Christ, you know, that we believed him, that we share that with others. Uh, because apart from that, man is separated in every imaginable way from God. There is no way back to God except through Christ. And even those who may want to emphasize baptism, baptism apart from Christ, no matter how many baptisms someone does, that will not make anyone pure or holy. It will not reestablish any communication or relationship with God himself. It is Christ that the, the, the spring, uh, the, the fountain of blood that we talk about, we sometimes think about, is that which purifies man from his impurities and from his sinfulness and reunites us with God so that we then can walk with God as Adam did in the book of Genesis. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your grace and kindness and goodness. And we thank you, Lord, not only because you're a God who's consistently holy, but Father, we know that if if we truly have a grasp of your holiness, we would know, Lord, that just because of your holiness, it is impossible for us to ever to be reconciled to you. There, there, we, the gap between you and us is so great and so wide that it is a mathematical impossibility for any one individual or group to ever do enough good or to even participate in enough ritual baths to ever place ourselves in a position where we can commune with you and even call you our Father. That, Lord, that all this has been given to us as a gift because you have done the work for us and on our behalf. And you've given us Christ and all that he said and all that he did on our behalf. Father, what an amazing thing that is. We pray also, Lord, that you would deepen our understanding of holiness. That, Father, we would recognize that you desire holiness in every aspect of our life. And we do know, that, Lord, that apart from your help, 
it is impossible, even for your own children, to live up to the standard that you've established for us. How grateful we are, Father, for your love and your daily ongoing presence in our lives. We do thank you, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.